people tell me, well, we can't pray in school. That's nonsense. You can pray anytime, anywhere you want to pray. I prayed my children all the way through college, all the way through graduate school. They'd call me in law school and business school and college. Dad, I got an exam in three minutes and we'd pray together. You can pray wherever you want to pray. The problem is we don't pray. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Romans, and we're in a message entitled Effective Corporate Prayer. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes from the Lord's Prayer how we ought to pray. We ought to have a personal time with the Lord where we can pour out our hearts to Him. Someone called me on the Bible line recently and they said, well, I'm in a church and there's no one who is willing to teach the Sunday school class. It's not all women. It's all, not all men. It's a mixed group of men and women together. And none of the men are willing to do it. And I know Paul says that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over men. Should I teach? Absolutely not. The women should say, men, step up to the plate and serve. Be a man. But you don't usurp their authority. And you see, in liberalism, in liberal Protestantism today, we've reversed the roles and we wonder why the church is being feminized. And we wonder why in so many of these liberal denominations, so many young boys are coming out homosexual. We're feeding the problem in liberal theology. And now we have invited the problem into the evangelical church because we are reversing roles. God is a lot smarter and a lot wiser than us. And if all of a sudden we see something in 2,000 years of church history that no one else has seen, and all of a sudden now Paul has been a homophobic person, and all of a sudden he was a repressive person, and we need to let women be pastors. Listen, we are doing a great disservice to God when we do that. So he says, I want men to pray. Take the initiative. Women should pray at a Wednesday night service, but if it's all women, we got a problem, guys. Men should take the initiative. Men should lead in prayer. Now, there was nothing wrong with a Pharisee praying in the synagogue, in the assembly. For that matter, there was nothing wrong with a Pharisee praying on the street corner. Hundreds of pastors gathered yesterday in Columbia to pray for our state and to pray for the fact that we want marriage to be one man and one woman until death separates them. That that is God's ideal and that we're not going to bend on that. Nothing wrong with taking your prayer into the public spectrum unless you are doing it to be seen by men for the applause of men. It's like the young lawyer who had just gone into business. He hung out his shingle at his brand new office, hoping and waiting for the first client. All of a sudden, he heard someone walking down the corridor, and he thought, I need to impress this person. So he, he picked up the telephone with no one else on the other end, and he had a mock conversation. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, you know, my, my corporation schedule is so heavy, I don't think I'll be able to see you this week. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, well, um, you know, my two secretaries are sick today, but if you'll call my wife, I mean my secretary, uh, next week, I'm sure we could set up an appointment. Maybe I can squeeze you in at the end of the week. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, thank you very much. He hangs up the phone, man walks up to his desk, said, sir, I'm here from the telephone company to hook up your phone. <laughs> That's the kind of prayer that many of us are expressing, talking to God where no one else is listening simply to be praying to be seen by men. 
And so what the Lord Jesus is doing here is he is uncovering the true motivation of the Pharisee, the one who in the restaurant or on the street corner is praying only to be seen by men, only for their applause. And Jesus said, yes, they've received their reward in full. All the reward they are going to get, the praise and applause of men. But look at verse 6, the very first word I have circled. It's the word but. It indicates a contrast. But, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, the real test of your prayer life is not what you do on a Wednesday night or in some adult Bible fellowship in some public prayer meeting, but what you do in your private experience. And unfortunately, Phariseeism is far from dead. The religious Pharisee prayed not to worship the living God, but to gain a reputation for himself. One Wednesday night years ago, I said, look, if you have not had some time alone since Sunday, just you and God, then don't come up here and pray. And nobody came, which I'm thankful. But I was not thankful that none of us are praying. You need a place. I don't care if it's in your home or your office or your car. You need some place where you can shut out the entire world. And if you really want to know what your prayer life is like, you start with your private prayer life. If the only time you pray is when it's in a public setting, then there's something wrong with your prayer life. Jesus said, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Our Father who's in secret is waiting, He's wanting, He's longing for us to come into His presence. And so our prayer is to be, in one respect, done in secret. Just like our giving, just like our fasting. Again, there's public expressions of all three, but it starts in our prayer life. And so the Lord is trying to purify our motives, but he doesn't stop there. The only sin in prayer is not simply hypocrisy, also sometimes the way we pray. Look, if you will, in verse 7, in the counsel he gives, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Meaningless repetition, it's one word that means literally to stammer or to babble in the original. So he's changing gears. He's talking about another abuse of prayer. And so while hypocrisy is one abuse of prayer that diverts glory from God to man, verbosity is another abuse of prayer where through the recitation of repeated words, we think that somehow we're going to move the hand of God. Don't pray like the Gentiles. We saw last week that the term ethnos, ethnoi here, uh, can be used of Gentiles who are just non-Jews, or it's used as a synonym for pagans. In fact, some of the newer translations don't literally translate it. They just say, don't pray like the pagans. But that's the thought. Don't pray like a pagan. Now, God's not against repeated prayer. Jesus himself three times in the Garden of Gethsemane repeated his prayer and he left, Matthew 26 records, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So he's not against repeated prayer, nor is he against persevering prayer, but he is against prayer without thinking, where we are all lips and no heart. When I was a child, I used to pray the rosary. I had a set of rosary beads. I still have them. 
I don't use them anymore, but I have them as a reminder of what God saved me from. And I would take these beads, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, holy Mary, mother of God, pray for our sinners now in the hour of our death, amen. Next bead, Hail Mary, full of grace, and on and on and on and on and on. Not only was it meaningless repetition, I was also praying to someone I should not be praying to. We are to pray to God and to God alone. It's one of the reasons why I am cautiously against weekly liturgical worship. I'm not saying that there's not an occasional time for liturgical worship, but typically churches that have a litur- liturgical style, the pastor says this, the people say that, boom, 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 boom. After a while, it becomes mindless. Totally mindless. I was in a church, they'd read a portion of Scripture, and people would say, this is the word of the Lord. Portion of Scripture, this is the word of the Lord. Then they read at this funeral from the book of wisdom, which is not Scripture, it's from the Apocrypha, and everyone said in unison, this is the word of God. And I felt like standing up and saying, no, it is not. God did not inspire that text. But people are mindless sometimes. But lest we be too hard on those from that kind of background, sometimes as evangelical Christians in our extemporaneous kinds of prayer, they also become route, like God bless the gift and the giver. Or Lord bless this food to our bodies and our bodies to thy service, etc., etc., ad nauseum. In its words, without heart and mind. And so God is interested that the words in our heart connect, and he's not interested in the language of your prayer per se. People think, I can't pray because I'm not a theologian or a pastor. You don't need to be. You don't need to either pray in Shakespearean English. I went into the very first church I was a part of as a new Christian, and everybody was praying like Shakespeare. And I thought, man, I can't pray like that. It's not the language of your prayer. It's not the length of your prayer. It's the heart of your prayer. And so Jesus wants us to understand that any kind of prayer where the mouth is running and the heart is not engaged is not the kind of prayer that pleases him. Look again in verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard by their many words. Don't pray like the pagans who think their many words are going to somehow move God, that God is impressed by the mechanics or the statistics of our prayer, by the volume of words, or even the number of hours we spend in prayer. And so he says in verse 8, so do not be like them. Don't pray like the non-Christian who thinks he'll be heard for his many words. And why not? Because we don't have that kind of God. That's not the God of the Bible who's been revealed to us. So we are not to do as they do because we are not to think as they think. On the contrary, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not ignorant. You don't inform God of anything. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God is not ignorant. He knows everything. And nor is he bothered that you have to somehow persuade him. Jesus reminds us here in verse 8, he is your father. And if you are his son and daughter through a second birth, then you can call him father. You say, well, if he knows it already, as Jesus said, then what's the point in praying? You don't pray to inform God. You don't pray to impress God. Nor do you pray to excite him like it's your duty somehow to remove the reluctancy that you think he has. 
No, this is a privilege where we can fellowship with the Lord, where we can spend time in his presence, where our worries and our anxieties and our cares can be relieved because we cast them upon him. And the wonder of wonders is that a sovereign God who rules and reigns the universe allows us to be a part of the administration and the ruling of that universe through prayer. It's one of the greatest acts of kindness that God gives his children. So prayer is not some meaningless repetition of words, nor is it done for our own glorification. It is communion with our Father who is in heaven. So that's the first characteristic that Paul underscores. He speaks here as the Lord Jesus did, as he reminded us in the opening verse, that one aspect of prayer is corporate prayer, and effective prayer is corporate in nature. Secondly, on your outline, I want you to see that effective prayer is sustained in fervency. It's sustained in fervency. Look now, if you will, at verse 30. He tells them and asks them to pray, to strive together, he said, notice, with me in your prayers to God for me. Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Those words, to strive together, is actually one word in the original. It's the word soon, the prefix, which means with, And added to that is a Greek word, agonizomai. You can hear our word agony, soon agonizomai. It literally means to strive or to agonize together with who? With believers in prayer. So sometimes we need to pray, and we need to pray, and then we need to pray even more. Unfortunately, very often, we have a kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards prayer. We ask God to do something, and He doesn't do it immediately, so we just quit. And so what we need to do is we need to strive together in prayer. Hold your finger here. Go back to the left, to the book of Acts, to the Acts of the Apostles, and go, if you will, to Acts chapter 12. I want you to see an example of striving together kind of prayer. Acts chapter 12. The Acts of the Apostles records the very first 30 years of church history after Jesus ascends up into heaven. And so I want you to see the fervency that these saints had together as they prayed together. Look at the opening verse of the 12th chapter that sets the context for us. We're told now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Now, it's a very dark and oppressing time in the life of the church because the man who's ruling in Israel is a man by the name of Herod Agrippa. The word Herod is not a first name. It is a title like senator or president or governor. In fact, uh, it finds its way seven times into the New Testament. There are five different Herods that are mentioned in the Gospels, two that are mentioned in the book of Acts. And this particular man is not only a Herod, he is also given the title king. And so sometimes he's called King Herod or Herod the King. And this particular one is Herod Agrippa I, who's the grandson of the most famous Herod in all of the Bible that most of you know, Herod the Great, that we all talk about every Christmas. Now, this particular Herod, in order to build political support with the unbelieving Jewish people living there in Israel, sought to persecute the Jewish Christians. And so notice verse 2, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. 
Do you remember the three apostles in the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. This is the James that Herod has put to death. This is the James whose mother came to the Lord Jesus one day and, and she made a request as a good Jewish mother. Hey, can my two sons, James and John, sit on your left and your right? And Jesus said, you don't really know what you're asking. And then he reminded them that the path to the throne would be a path of suffering and persecution. And so James becomes the very first of all the disciples, all the apostles to be martyred. And John suffers greatly in persecution. He is the only one who doesn't die a martyr's death, but he suffers the end of his life out on the Isle of Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. And so this venomous, hateful king takes this apostle and he gives him death with a sword, which is a first century metaphor for beheading. The prophet Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets said the church would start in a time of darkness. And it also speaks of the end of the second reign of Messiah, as does the New Testament, that the church will end in the time of darkness. And so many Christians were beheaded in the first century. My brother and I were having a discussion 20 years ago, and we're talking about how unbelievers laugh at the fact that the revelation speaks of people being beheaded. But that's how the church age will end. And we're beginning to see the seeds of Antichrist being sown. And there's coming a day when the Antichrist is on the throne. And those who are left behind after the catching up of the church will have a decision to make. They will either worship Christ or Antichrist. And if you choose Christ over Antichrist, you have one fate. You lose your head. What if a group like ISIS came in here today? They said, renounce Christ. And you live. Believe in Christ and you lose your head. Those days are coming, my friend. They are here. And many of God's people are beginning to see it. Verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So seeing how much popularity he gained with these unbelieving Jews by taking James' head off, now he proceeds to arrest another apostle. And we're told that this arrest takes place during the days of unleavened bread. That's a significant historical footnote. Why does he do it now? Because over two million Jewish pilgrims would pack the city of Jerusalem for this day. It was one of three required feasts that a Jew had to come. And so there he is. He is in prison. But there was also an agreement that the Jewish people had that there would be no executions during the holiday. Now, we don't know how far they are into this seven-day feast of weeks, but Peter's in prison, and he can count down the number of days that they have a planned execution. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers, a Roman squad, a, a Roman tetradion. The Greek text is, uh, speaks of four soldiers. In other words, there, there's four groups of four, 16 soldiers. Guarding this apostle. Two that he's changed to, chained to. There's a plurality of those who are at the door, probably two there, and then spread throughout the whole prison. Why such a need? Because Herod already knew of what took place in Acts 5. 
and the prison break that God had brought about, and he didn't want history to repeat itself. And so verse 4 tells us that Herod was intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. For what purpose? To have a public, showy execution to gain the approval of the unbelieving Jewish people. Well, news spreads fast, and so God's people gather. At this point, the church, for the most part, is almost all Jewish there in this city. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in the prison, but, and that's a very important but because it denotes a change that it's going to happen as it relates to Peter, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So outwardly, the situation looks hopeless. James has already been executed and Peter's death is going to take place after Passover. From a human perspective, it's utterly impossible. They can't organize a mob to storm the prison and to free him. They certainly have no clout. They are a despised first century minority. They have no political clout to go and to talk to Herod over the situation. And so what do they do? They do the only thing they can do, and that is to pray. Now, the intelligentsia would sneer at that, but I can tell you one person who doesn't sneer at it, and that's the devil, because the devil trembles when even the weakest Christian prays. And so the door is shut for these believers. There's one door that's open, and it's straight up into the heavens, and they pray. You know, people tell me, well, we can't pray in school. That's nonsense. You can pray anytime, anywhere you want to pray. I prayed my children all the way through college, all the way through graduate school. They'd call me in law school and business school and college. Dad, I got an exam in three minutes and we'd pray together. You can pray wherever you want to pray. The problem is we don't pray. The problem is we don't take the initiative. So Peter, we're told, was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Prayer ought to be our first resort, not our last resort. Prayer was made, notice, for him. We're talking about specific prayer here. They have a specific prayer. Oh God, you know your servant, Peter. We bring him today to your throne of grace. And notice too, it says it was being made. Some of your translations just say was made. The NASB captures it beautifully. Was being made because it's a tense in Greek that is talking about continual, persistent prayer. Look at verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in the front of the door were watching over the prison. So the order for the execution had been signed. Peter's supposed to die the next day and he's out like a light. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. But even the brilliant presence of a light of a holy angel from God doesn't wake this man up. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. The angel had to give Peter an elbow or a wing, I don't know. And he said, get up, Peter, get up. He is sound asleep, a guard on either side. The bright light doesn't wake him. He has to be roused. Why is it? Knowing that his execution is the next day, how is it that he can sleep so well? Because of a promise he had from Jesus Christ. It's recorded in John 21. Let me read it to you. Jesus said to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, 
When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Peter, in your old age, when you grow old, you will not have the same freedom you have as a young man. Someone else will gird you. Someone else will stretch out your hand. Someone will bring you and lead you where you do not wish to go. That's a Hebraism. It's a euphemism for crucifixion. So Peter can raise him. Look, I'm not an old man, he must have thought. Jesus promised me it wouldn't be until I am an old man that will stretch out my hands and crucify me. I'm not going to die by beheading, and I'm certainly not going to die now. And so he sleeps like a baby. And some of us would sleep a whole lot better at night if we knew some of the promises of God and we claim them by faith. Verse 8, and the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He's, he's groggy. He's under angel dust. I don't know. But when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed him in typical angel form. Angels will come. They will serve God's people. They're typically in a hurry to discharge their duty. And once they're done, they vanish. And so he's suddenly gone. And here's Peter, and he, he kind of wakes up. Look at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he realizes this is not a vision. This is actually happening. When he came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, namely his execution. He wakes up, he says, this is not a dream, I'm free. God has checkmate Herod and Peter loves it. And when he had realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Now, don't miss that. Here they are in this prayer meeting. Oh, Lord God, we need Peter. We need him for the work of the kingdom. God, please deliver your servant Peter. And Peter shows up at the door. She recognizes his voice. She's overjoyed by this situation, forgets to open the door, and runs back into the prayer meeting. And they said, Peter's outside. And they say to her, verse 15, you're out of your mind. The word mind here is mania. We get our word maniac. But she kept insisting that it was so. But they kept saying, it's his angel. Referring loosely to what today we call a guardian angel. But they weren't praying for the deliverance of his angel. They were praying for Peter. But Peter continued knocking. And the tense indicates it's an ongoing knocking. He's knocking and knocking probably till his knuckles are red. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. That's mild compared to what the Greek text says. You could translate it, they were stunned. The God who answered the prayers of the church on behalf of Peter is the God who answers our prayers today. To listen again to today's message from Romans 15 entitled Effective Corporate Prayer, download the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM71. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, we conclude our message, Effective Corporate Prayer. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.